Talking this morning with Hood River City Council member Peter Cornelison and Gorge Res- resident Cynthia Winter. And you've been listening to Locus Focus here on KBOO Community Radio. If you're just tuning in and you'd like to hear what you missed or you want your friends or family to hear the show, you can listen to it online or download the audio later this afternoon on our website, kboo.fm slash locus-focus. Next week, Eric DePlace with State Line Institute is going to become is going to return to Locus Focus to mull over this year of fire floods and Trump. My engineer is Patsy Kohlberg. I'm Barbara Bernstein. We're going to Got with some music by Ricky Lee Jones, Firewalker. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Julie got some ecstasy. She laid down on the steering wheel. Cause love comes to the first thing love sees. Love comes to the first thing that makes it real. Good morning. You are tuned to KBOO Portland. KBOO keeps you informed and you can get involved. To become a member, go to kboo.fm and click on Donate. Coming up at the bo- on the Boo at 1130 today on Voices for the Animals, Dab Stedman interviews Joe Becker, professional disaster preparedness consultant about the steps pet owners can take to keep their animals safe in the event of both small emergencies and large-scale disasters. Stay tuned now for Disability Awareness. Women from Doctors Without Borders tell some of their stories of healing around the world. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meetings policy is available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. Meetings will be held at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue in Portland. The Finance Committee meets the fourth Monday of every month at 4.30 p.m. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of Food for the Soul, a benefit for Potluck in the Park on Saturday, October 28th at the Tiffany Center in Portland. Food for the Soul is an evening of food, music, and fun benefiting Potluck in the Park. The night includes performances from Tom Grant, his band, and vocalists from around the PNW. Again, that's Food for the Soul, a benefit for Potluck in the Park on Saturday, October 28th at the Tiffany Center, 1410 Southwest Morrison Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, is an independent medical humanitarian aid organization. Everything is bigger here. It's more of an emergency. Everything you see back home, you see here, but then in a late stage and without diagnostics. Worries, hostility, and threats of violence are mounting in West Africa as the worst Ebola outbreak on record has spread to four countries. On January the 2nd, five members of MSF were abducted in northern Syria and held captive by an armed group for several months. This week on Making Contact... 
What I would really love to do is take the people who have an anti-refugee sentiment and let them really sit down and meet refugees and befriend them. They have hopes and they have dreams and they are doing anything they can for their family to survive. The wealthy countries can afford to be more generous. There needs to be rebuilding of a global value system which will make sure that we take care of each other. Women Rising Radio features four women working with Doctors Without Borders, also known in French as Médecins Sans Frontières, or MSF. Winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, MSF sends mobile medical teams to critical hotspots around the world, aiding refugees and survivors of violence, natural disasters, and epidemics. MSF builds relationships with local and national medical staff, tackling the most difficult and urgent health crises in the most dangerous parts of the world. And each of these four women knew she wanted to join MSF, even while still in school. Estrella Lasri was in medical school in Spain, specializing in tropical medicine to prepare for MSF. I went into medicine to do what I'm doing now, actually, to work for MSF and to do humanitarian work. And that was the main driver in terms of what type of medical career I wanted to pursue. Melanie Capiccioni, a dual citizen of the U.S. and San Marino, was working as a journalist interviewing refugees from conflict zones. She realized she wanted to go beyond just reporting on the horrors she was hearing. And I thought, what's more direct and immediate action than to be a nurse? I thought, wouldn't it be great to just be this pair of hands that can come in and help someone through the crisis? And really, that's kind of how I think of MSF. It's this pair of hands that buys someone more time, gets them to the other side of the crisis. And I knew from the start that I wanted to work with MSF as a nurse. I really agree with the organization's principles of independence and impartiality and neutrality. They work wherever the need is the greatest, and that really spoke to me. Dr. Nima Kaseje was born in the U.S. and raised in Kenya. She felt called to become a field surgeon with MSF in order to provide wider access to surgery. The reason why I chose to work with MSF is that they share my values. The value I share with them is that we're all the same, we, we're all human beings, and all of our lives are interconnected. And for that reason, we should make sure that we lend a hand to those who are suffering. Twas in another lifetime, full of toil and blood, when blackness was a virtue and the world was full of mud. He came in from the wilderness, a creature void of form. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. Please stay calm, okay? We are here to help you, okay? So stay calm. We're gonna bring you to Italy, okay? There is place for everyone in the big boat. So please, just be calm. In 2015, more than a million refugees attempted to cross the Mediterranean Sea in search of new lives far from their home countries. Another half million attempted the perilous journey in 2016. Most were fleeing violence and chaos in Africa and the Middle East. 
The United Nations estimates that some 4,000 refugees have drowned in each of those years. Many others were found drifting out at sea in flimsy, overcrowded, inflatable rafts, often in rough weather and at the mercy of smugglers. One refugee spoke of having paid $550 to be at sea in a coffin. Canada's Dr. Sarah Giles worked on the MSF ship Aquarius off the coast of Libya, rescuing thousands of refugees fleeing for their lives. I was the one doctor on Aquarius. Aquarius is a joint project between Doctors Without Borders and SOS Mediterranean, uh, which is another NGO. We combined our powers to help rescue people who were in small boats that were not seaworthy. I, along with two nurses and a midwife, provided medical care for up to about 750 people at a time. And we did everything from deliver babies to resuscitate people who had drowned to clean toilets and scrub the decks, whatever was required. The ambience on Aquarius could be quite relaxed, but then it also went to incredibly tense. I was on Aquarius for four months and I started in the summer However, as the seasons started to change and winter started to come, the weather became colder, the waves became bigger, and huge numbers of people started to die. So as we went from a relatively calm August to an absolutely horrendous November, the mood certainly changed. Aquarius boat number one coming back with one eight persons. Copy one eight, green light, over. This morning we had two rescues, uh, two rubber boats with 240 persons. Among them there were six uh, pregnant women. When Sarah was interviewed on National Public Radio, she emphasized the horrific ordeals that women refugees experience. She said their suffering defied belief. These women were incredibly strong. They had often been forced out of their home countries, been on months to year-long journeys to get to Libya. They had often been separated from their families, from their loved ones. Often they had been raped, and yet they were still going. One of the unfortunate tasks I had to do on the boat was to, when asked, I would give women a pregnancy test and then have to break the news to them that they were pregnant. Often they had told me, you know, they had left home two years ago and now they were three or four or five months pregnant. And quite often this was not a pregnancy that they wanted and was the result of rape. I saw one woman who came to us in labor. She's my height, so five foot six, and she weighed about 75 pounds. She was emaciated. She was full term. She had scurvy. And it was very clear to me that there was no way that she would be able to have the baby on the boat. She just wasn't in a condition that was sort of compatible with surviving labor. And we had to evacuate her from the boat. She ended up getting multiple transfusions and having a C-section and both she and the baby survived. But she happened to be in the right place at the right time. If she had been on a boat a day later, there's no way that she would have survived. 
I remember one of my colleagues noticed that a woman had unusual burns on her hand and suggested that I take her down to the clinic to just talk to her. And the burns didn't look like something that you would accidentally have. And when I talked to her, she told me her story. She had been living in a house in Libya. At one point, the house was raided. Her husband was killed before her eyes. Her aunt was killed before her eyes. And as her hand was being held in the gas flame above the oven, she watched her younger sister being raped. In a bid to flee, she threw herself out a window and uh, hurt her wrist. It was, you know, just absolutely horrific story to hear. And I have two sisters of my own that I'm very close to. And I didn't want to ask the next question, which was, what happened to your sister? And when she looked at me, her eyes filled with tears, and she said, I have no idea. That was three months ago. I don't know if she's dead or alive. I'm completely alone in this world. Many of the refugees Sarah rescued were children who made it to safety aboard the Aquarius. Others, like the Syrian toddler Elan Kurdi, were not so fortunate. The heartbreaking photograph of his little body, washed up on the shores of the Mediterranean, came to symbolize the magnitude of the humanitarian crisis. We had three categories of child refugees. One were the young kids under five, often traveling with parents or family who acted as surrogate parents. And they were incredibly resilient. We'd bring them onto the boat, we'd let them sleep, we'd feed them, and then they were up and ready to play. Then there were children under the age of 18 traveling alone. And I think most parents have trouble thinking about kids that age taking public transit by themselves, let alone crossing a continent and trying to cross a sea. And in fact, there was one little guy, he was about 10, and he had three children, all of whom were in diapers, in his charge. And he did a great job looking after the three of them, making sure they were fed, keeping them all together. But you could clearly see the stress on his face. And uh, in, in trying to make his short time with us a little bit better, I gave him some pencil crayons and some paper, and he drew really fantastic pictures. But, you know, you just sort of thought, this kid has not been able to have a childhood. In the um, just under four months where I was on Aquarius, we rescued 4,000 people. <laughs> photograph of his little body washed up on the shores of the Mediterranean came to symbolize the magnitude of the humanitarian crisis. We had three categories of child refugees. One were the young kids under five, often traveling with parents or family who acted as surrogate parents. And they were incredibly resilient. We'd bring them onto the boat, we'd let them sleep, we'd feed them, and then they were up and ready to play. Then there were children under the age of 18 traveling alone. And I think most parents have trouble thinking about kids that age taking public transit by themselves, let alone crossing a continent and trying to cross a sea. And in fact, there was one little guy, he was about 10, and he had three children, all of whom were in diapers, in his charge. And he 
did a great job looking after the three of them, making sure they were fed, keeping them all together. But you could clearly see the stress on his face. And uh, in, in trying to make his short time with us a little bit better, I gave him some pencil crayons and some paper, and he drew really fantastic pictures. But, you know, you just sort of thought, this kid has not been able to have a childhood. In the um, just under four months where I was on Aquarius, we rescued 4,000 people. That may sound like a lot, but those numbers have actually gone up recently. Last year in the Mediterranean, there were just over 5,000 official deaths, but we know that the death rate is far higher than that. That's just people who were accounted for. So there were bodies seen, there were boats recovered. Global response to the huge spike in refugee migration has been less than welcoming, especially from the wealthier nations. And politicians like Marine Le Pen in France and Donald Trump in the U.S. ran their campaigns on the politics of fear, promoting anti-refugee, anti-immigrant policies that will increase the suffering of millions searching for safety and stability. Aid workers say the official response to the crisis in the Mediterranean has been too little, too late. But Dr. Sarah Giles believes non-governmental organizations, or NGOs, have bravely stepped up to save lives on land and at sea. While I was on the ship, there were two NGOs, MSF, or Doctors Without Borders, and SOS. And SOS was comprised of sailors from around the world, but mostly from the EU, who simply believe that people should not drown at sea. And, you know, they weren't getting paid, they were volunteers, and for me that was, you know, a great symbol of hope for the future. And it kept me going from day to day. In her work with MSF, Spain's Dr. Estrella Lasri often confronted global inefficiency, inequality, and indifference toward the hardest-hit populations. My first assignment was DRC, and I was there almost for a year. And it was interesting because I was coming from working in a hospital in the UK where care was very rigorous and all of the medical procedures, and, and then having to, from a clinician perspective, get used to working with much less resources, even not having access to a, a full blood count, which is very standard in rich country settings, was difficult. And you have to get used to rely more on the resources ha that you have and use your clinical skills a lot more than you would in a rich country setting. Probably the most difficult to get used to was to seeing so many children die. I remember having seen one child die in the emergency room in Spain, and, and that was the only child I had ever seen die, and I cannot count the amount of children that I saw die just in, in that first mission. So a lot of children dying from malaria, children dying from meningitis, from pneumonia, children dying from malnutrition, so things that we would be able to treat in other contexts, and, and this was quite tough. One of my first patients was a child with a type of lymphoma that's somewhat prevalent in Africa, but that's not common outside of Africa. That's called Burkitt's lymphoma. And it's treatable with oral chemotherapy. And throughout the whole mission, we couldn't end up getting the drugs to treat the, the cancer itself. 
it was extremely frustrating to live through this in the field. So the way MSF works is we manage our supply from supply centers that are based in Europe that get drugs from all over the world. So every time you want to introduce a new drug that's not part of the standard list of drugs that we have, there's a whole process that goes behind, which is something that I know now. It's not something that I knew when when I was <laughs> bombarding headquarters with requests for this drug. In 2014, when Ebola flared up in Africa and became a global threat, Estrella was at the New York headquarters of MSF, or Doctors Without Borders, where she was working as an advisor. I went to the field in September to Liberia to try and see what activities we would be developing. Ebola was horrible in many ways. It affected over 28,000 people. But at the same time, the impact that it had on the health systems was even worse, even deeper, and probably caused a lot more death and a lot more disease than Ebola itself. A lot of the staff had either died or was deployed in the Ebola response. So there were a lot of health facilities that were closed. And it was tough. It was very tough because there was a lot of internal discussion as well and sometimes not very clear what the decision-making paths were and having that uncertainty of where is it going to pop up and this seems like it's controlled here but how long is it going to be controlled for and the whole fragility of the situation was quite difficult to deal with. I wasn't very worried about getting it. I was taking care of myself and I wasn't as exposed to patients as other of my colleagues were. On the other hand, I left home for a month and I ended up staying away for six months and I wasn't allowed to go back to the U.S. Well, I mean, I wasn't allowed to go back, but I would have been quarantined, so it didn't make too much sense to go back to the U.S. Dr. Estrella Lazri is the Tropical Medical Advisor for Doctors Without Borders, which has workers on the ground throughout West Africa. Dr. Lazri, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. How extensive and surprising is this outbreak? Well, the fact that it's already extended beyond the the number... I did a lot of interviews during the Ebola outbreak, and what I kept asking every time a journalist asked me at the end of the interview, is there something I forgot? And I said, no, but there's, I have a, one request. Can you please remember these countries once the Ebola outbreak is finished? Because knowing that nobody would care once the outbreak was finished was also very tough. Estrella says that even with all the danger, trauma, frustration, and difficulties, the humanitarian aid work she does with MSF is both exciting and fulfilling. In DRC, for one of my visits, we were the first car to cross the road when the M23 was in conflict with the national military. It's not not super pleasant <laughs> to know that, well, you could randomly be targeted just because you're testing the road to make sure everything seems safe. At the same time, there's a bit of an adrenaline kick. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. There's some part of excitement that comes from that to go to places where others won't go and doesn't only include places where there's a flood or or an earthquake, but also places that are in conflict. You're listening to Making Contact, 
This week's program was produced by Women Rising Radio. Visit us online at womenrisingradio.com and at radioproject.org. Melanie Capiccioni became a nurse with MSF and was assigned to treat severe malnutrition in South Sudan. MSF runs the only pediatric and maternity wards serving more than 100,000 people in the town of Awil, in a region with scarce medical resources. I arrived in April of 2016 and I was there for nine months. And my job there was to manage the ward treating children who had severe acute malnutrition plus another life-threatening complication. So that could be a respiratory infection requiring oxygen, severe infection where they need IV antibiotics, anemia where they need a blood transfusion, that sort of thing on top of the malnutrition. There's a team of about five doctors each managing a ward, and then a team of about four international nurses. The majority of the staff are locally hired staff. So in South Sudan, for example, more than 90% of our staff are actually South Sudanese. They were hired, trained from the country itself. So it's only less than 10% of the staff that are like me coming from international countries. Years of ongoing conflict and violence in the country have had a huge impact on the local population's ability to access basic services, health care, food, water, shelter. And there are hundreds of thousands of displaced people throughout the country. And then on top of that, a big cause of malnutrition is lack of access to primary health care. So we know this area is endemic for a lot of infectious diseases, waterborne illnesses, there's common childhood illnesses, and if those go untreated because people can't access health care or because there's no medications available in the health facilities, then they'll lead to malnutrition. There was a mother that brought her two sons to the hospital. The one son looked about four years old. He's chubby, like running around, up and down, grabbing stuff off the medication cart, getting into mischief. Normal, healthy kid. His brother looked about eight months old, couldn't walk, couldn't sit up on his own, was just miserable, crying every time you came near him. And it turned out the the little one had tuberculosis and pneumonia, so he was started on treatment for that in addition to the severe malnutrition. We didn't find out until days after he was admitted that the two brothers were actually twins. And so this was a perfect example of a chronic illness, tuberculosis, that went untreated because they didn't have access to care, and that led to the malnutrition. Part of MSF's mandate, it's a dual mandate to provide medical care, but also there's a part of the mandate which the French word for it is témoignage, which means witnessing roughly or speaking out. And so in instances where MSF witnesses any sort of obstruction of providing health care services or witnesses extreme violence, they may speak out publicly about it. They may engage in advocacy efforts. And I think they do this with malnutrition as well.
at one point in the project, we had a team of MSF epidemiologists who came to do a survey in the area. So I went along to help with the nutritional screening, and we drove a few hours from the hospital to this village that they had chosen, and they had a method that they followed to make sure that it was a random selection. So they spun a pen in the dirt, and then we walked in the direction that the pen pointed, and at first it seemed like nobody was home, and then the mother came running in from the field, and we asked her through the translator, do you have any young children at home? home. And she said yes and ducks into this mud brick hut and scoops out a child. And you could just tell from across the yard that the child had severe acute malnutrition. They had the stick arms and the distended abdomen and the floppy skin folds that are characteristic of it. I could even see also that the child was breathing faster than they should have been, so probably had some respiratory complication. So I didn't make it very far (laughs) with the survey team because we asked the mother if she could come to the hospital with a child, and she said yes and packed a cup and plate, and then we were in our land cruiser driving back to the hospital. After she went home, I just thought of how it was this random spin of a pen maybe that prolonged or, or saved this kid's life. And it motivated me because it made me think, okay, this was just one hour, and here we found a child who really needed this treatment, needed this care. And I just thought, oh my gosh, I just I want to go to every single house and give everyone food and health care. And I think one of the challenges is working within the limitations of the resources that you have. Dr. Nima Kaseje traveled with MSF to the Central African Republic and the Congo, bringing her surgical skills to the isolated, displaced, and war-wounded. In both countries, they are internally displaced people just because in both countries there's been chronic political instability and their flare-ups of violence. So during those times, people will move within the country. So yes, where we found ourselves, many times there was a local population, but also a population that sought refuge in the same place. Many come to the hospital following injury due to violence. And then the other group of patients we would see were mostly women with complications from pregnancy. And many times they would require surgical attention as well to save their lives and the lives of their babies. What struck me most during my missions was the number of adolescent girls that came to the hospital with complications from pregnancy. Many times, you know, at 14 and 15, the body's not physiologically ready to carry a pregnancy. And many times we would see obstruction, which means that the baby is not able to come out. And in those cases, a cesarean section is necessary. Um, So the concept that surgery is a luxury is a concept that we surgeons are trying to fight because it should form part of primary health care and part of simple medical assistance. Because currently, 5 billion people, so that's two-thirds of the world population, does not have access to surgical care. And that leads to 17 million deaths every year, which is more than HIV, AIDS, TB, and malaria combined. Surgeries should form part of primary medical assistance because many conditions, from injury, 
from complications from pregnancy cannot be treated with medical assistance alone, and they require surgical care. The courageous women profiled in this program work amid instability and upheaval caused by war and other violence, intensified by climate change, food insecurity, and the mass migrations of people desperate to survive. In addition to saving lives, these 